Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Invisible Not Broken, Explicitly Sick. This is Monica Michelle and I got to interview Michelle Irving and we discuss everything from being given a finite time of expectation of survival and how to prioritize your life when you are given years um, to the descent into the underworld and that was really what attracted me to this interview was uh, Michelle's viewpoint of looking at mythology as sort of an allegory for chronic illness. We also talk about her spiritual no and her spiritual yes, which I think is a life-changing viewpoint. Um, she's an amazing person to listen to, and I really hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed giving it. I'm really excited to introduce Michelle. Um, doing incredible work. And one of the things that caught my eye was that she has a discussion about Queen of the Underworld and how that applies to chronic illness. And also um, your journey through like work and having an invisible illness and dating, it sounded almost like at the height of your invisible illness. So mm -hmm. if you want to just start um, with what you have and a little bit, and I really want to get to your map of the underworld and chronic illness, that is, I'm so excited about that. But if, if you want to just start with what you have, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Monica. So I have two conditions. I got diagnosed at 35 with a life-threatening autoimmune condition, which affects my liver. And I really ended up in that diagnosis through my vanity. So I noticed there were dark circles under my eyes and I, I wanted to get them fixed. So I asked my GP about it. And that led to a whole you know, journey that most of us have of exploration. Mine was about eight months of trying to diagnose, lots of appointments, lots of tests and coming to this very rare autoimmune condition where a protein in my blood attacks my liver as if it's an organ donation. And so I'm treated the same way you would treat somebody who had actually had a liver transplant. So my immune system suppressed. That all really came to a head uh, in 2012 when I had tried the treatment and their steroid treatment and immune suppressants and I slept 18 out of 24 hours a day. So it was just untenable for me uh, through the process of treatment. And the advice was, if you don't have treatment, then you'll be terminal within five years. And I was really contemplative about that. I have a back, an academic background in philosophy, so I really went into the ethics of what is the good life for me and what is a good death, and I made the decision that I'll take the five years and I'll do the things that I want to do. I won't get everything I want to do done, but I'll do the things that I want to do. Part of the condition with the liver illness is that Anybody who works with the liver, you actually don't often know anything's wrong with the liver till it's reached a point that it's actually um, beyond repair, so to speak. But because the diagnosis was caught early, I felt fantastic off treatment. I felt crap on treatment. So that really led to this decision about what do I want to do with this time. There reached a point where I had a new specialist and I agreed that when he said to me, you'll take treatment, I would take treatment. And that day came 
And he said, you do not leave this hospital without treatment today. You are six months from there being irreversible scarring of your liver that we can't, you know, we can't save you from, we can't reverse. And I said, okay, I'll take treatment. In the time between 35 and 42, by the time this happened, new drugs had become available through cancer that can be used where anecdotally being used for this condition when you didn't respond well to the treatment that normally was offered. And that treatment works. My whole life is, you know, pretty fantastic on that treatment. I can still get fatigue if I get a cold or a flu. I'll be down for a very long period of time because my immune system is suppressed. But apart from that and a couple of kilos in weight, I'm pretty well on the treatment. That journey continued as I recovered and in 2016 I got a completely unrelated condition where I had vertigo and fell to the floor when I got out of bed and I'd had vertigo on and off but this was a point where I couldn't walk and I couldn't move and the room was spinning around me. So I went to the hospital, again went through a diagnostic process that was sort of up and down, uh, and it turns out that I was the right age and the right gender and had the right history of migraines to have this condition called migraine-associated vertigo. Uh, and what that, <laughs> yeah, so what that means is that instead of getting the headache for a migraine, I get vertigo. Oh, my goodness. I'm and it's vertigo 24-7. All the time? All the time. Okay. So that I'm going to have you just back much more second. And just yes. because I know that there's definitely people who have never heard the term vertigo, and I'd love for you to okay. explain what that is. So if you've ever sat on a spinning chair or you've been on a roller coaster and at the end you've sort of hopped off and you feel like your body's off centre and you feel like, you're not quite on the ground. That's the experience of vertigo. And in this process, what you get is instead of just feeling slightly off centre, I would fall to the floor knowing that the floor was stable. But in my experience, I was on a boat in an enormous storm and the ceiling was spinning, the floor was spinning. I had motion sickness um, because my brain believed that uh, the whole world was spinning around me and nothing was stable. I mean, I think we all feel a little bit like that existentially at the moment, but that this, I've only had that experience a few times and it, that's a really incredible way to describe it is that the whole world is maybe like you're on a boat and there's, there's almost like no safe port. How did this affect your everyday life? You'd already been dealing with a life-threatening illness before this, how did the vertigo affect your life? So the vertigo was much more debilitating than the life-threatening condition because the vertigo isn't life-threatening. I went and started treatment for that and I still received treatment for that. What it did was for about a very long time, so about 18 months or so, but certainly for the first eight months, I had vertigo 24-7. So I would be lying in bed and I would have vertigo. I couldn't, um, walking to the kitchen was a problem. I could just 
hold both the walls and sort of make it as if I was on a ship to the bathroom. Uh, but I couldn't walk really very far, if at all. Um, I couldn't certainly couldn't cook for myself. So in many ways, it mirrored the experience that I've had with the life-threatening illness treatment because the intervention treatment for that was pretty much the same. I couldn't um, couldn't walk a lot, couldn't care for myself, couldn't clean the house, couldn't organise food, et cetera, et cetera. So I was generally truly pissed off. I was genuinely really cheesed off that I just processed the first one and here's the second one. And that process was uh, a sort of more complex because nobody can tell that you're feeling vertigo. Whereas with the liver, they can't tell that you've got a liver condition, but um, on the, anybody who's been on steroids will know that there's suddenly your face changes and there's you have some indication that everything is a bit unwell. Uh, but both of them in general, I look, you know, pretty healthy, blah, 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 and these are two conditions that I manage. And how are you able to access help? I know you're in a socialized medicine area, but how are you able to just access the help from like family, friends? How did that work for you? With Right. So uh, it was complex like most people's. I live in a city far from my, in Australia. I live in Melbourne. My family's in Brisbane. So I live sort of quite about a three and a half hour flight from them. And that uh, they didn't cope well with the diagnosis um, and it was invisible to them. So in many ways I had the experience of not so helpful family members and had to find other people who were actually helpful um, and I really relied on the women in my life and it was a very big thing. I was just truly terrified of asking for help but I had no alternative. And what that did was I learned the skill of not only asking for genuine help, but also learning to receive it. Mm. I was just uh, talking to a friend of mine who said that, you know, um, something to the effect of you don't have to earn rest. Um, yeah, fantastic. Right? Like, I feel like there's so much shame that we feel and so much um, need to justify our, our day, our minutes, our existence. And that, yeah, you really um, you hit that very, very beautifully. Um, I did want to move back just for a second because you, yeah. you did experience something that a lot of the people I talk to don't experience, which is um, most of us have a threat to our lifestyle. We don't have a threat to our actual lives a lot of the time. Yeah. How did you prioritize when you actually are given something like a yeah, a calendar with, you know, this is how yeah. much time you can expect. How did you make priorities to like what books you're going to read, what movies you're going to watch, what you're going to do with your time, travel, focus, work, family? How did you prioritize? So what I did was because I felt so well um, in that process, it wasn't till I started feeling really sick um, and fatigued uh, about 12 months before uh, the sort of intervention if you take treatment today, um, that I had this feeling of just like anybody would feel before the experience of serious illness, that I was well and I was taking yoga classes and dance classes, etc. So I worked out the places that I wanted to see in the world and one of them was Paris. 
Oh. <laughs> and <laughs> I made this um, commitment. I worked out how to go live in Paris for six months. And that was my dream. And what happened in that is I went to live in Paris for that period of time and a whole lot of things went wrong with the French. Um, the apartment I leased was not the apartment that I turned up to. There was a lot of um, poor treatment uh, about the Australian traveller in that process. So I ended up going to Rome and I went to New York and those were some of the things that I did. In terms of what I wanted to do in the gift of my life, like this experience, okay, this is going to close out. What do I want to have as my experience to the best of my capacity here? I really worked on intimacy and for that was really the authentic truth with friends and other relationships. So I made this decision that I really wanted to feel connected to people and that required both my vulnerability and learning the skills of being authentic, um, which sounds so odd to say, but we're sort of trained out of authenticity. So I trained myself or untrained myself from masking um, and learned the skills of deep connection. Can you give just and, a bit of an example? Of, it's, it's actually something I've been working on and I know a lot of my friends are working on is the unmasking, the being vulnerable and not trying to spend so much of your spoons on making others comfortable around you. Yeah. Uh, so I had one dear friend who I felt had these skills of authenticness um, and was committed to them and we sort of did the work together. So two things that I could talk about that I sort of developed over that period of time is the sake what is my sacred no? What does my true genuine no feel like in the world? And what does my true genuine yes feel like in the world? Mm. So those two skills, which which I now refer to as my sacred no and my sacred yes. Uh, and this is part of my work in the world. This is what I train women to feel in themselves and then speak from. And your sacred no, uh, you can feel in your body, basically. I always went to my body as part of the learning of what is no because your body's really fast at telling you what's a no and your brain is really fast at trying to negotiate, reason, outwit your body, um, tell you all the reasons why no is not an acceptable answer, tell you all the reasons why somebody else's uh, priorities or comfort is more important than your, yours. And I had to learn this power of really standing my sacred ground. This is my no and this is my yes and this is what it feels like. That is um that is such a beautiful statement. It's so important. And I think especially as an owner of ovaries, it's like something that we were taught so strongly was to even put our own personal safety behind someone else's um, being comfortable. And yes. um, yeah, that's one of the things I've had to learn in raising a daughter is um, another owner of ovaries is teaching her to put her safety and her comfort as a huge priority in that. that yes. Yeah, that social exchange, it's, um, 
yeah, um, that's one of the things that's that's so important to learn. Thank you for that that tip. I think it's it's thing we we're taught so much on not saying no or hedging around the no. Yes. And what happens is when you say no directly, and it doesn't have to be aggressive. For me, um, in the office, I would say I, I don't have the capacity to do that. Oh, I like that. And so what it does is talk about the actual physical capacity. Um, it's very clean. I'm not saying they need to do anything or be something, etc. I'm just saying that's not within my capacity. And I really like the I don't have capacity to do that because there's not a negotiation with me mm-hmm. then about my capacity. It's not I don't think I can or I think I can or hedging. It's just very clean and direct. And then you have to let the other person have their experience of that because most people don't have direct communication. <laughs> so they're learning the skill of being a colleague, being a manager, being a staff member of somebody who actually has the skill to set a boundary. Um, And that takes work on their part to work out, okay, somebody's been just truly direct with me. Right, what do I do? Hang on, this is very unusual. I can't (laughs) negotiate with them. What's my response? I, I love it because that would even work in social situations and dealing with friends and that problem of like keeping that negotiation open with, uh, maybe, or ask me next week. And that's going to cause you more spoons down the road. And it, it absolutely a confusion, but you bring up something really beautiful about vulnerability and that we almost have to get used to not being able to write our own script for how the other person's going to process it. Like there's a certain level of control you must let go of to be truly vulnerable. And actually to run your life, to be really honest, most of us, um, both experience the vulnerability, but we experience other people's vulnerability. And there's nobody on this planet where you can't see when they're hedging. Mm. Like you know when somebody's hedging, you're just trained to go around them to get your agenda or to apologise for them being so uncomfortable that they have to hedge. And we spend an enormous amount of energy trying to manage other people's reactions, response to us and our reactions to them and you spend way too many spoons in that. The directness frees up your energy to actually be able to do things that you want to do for yourself that day, even if it's Netflix. (laughs) And I am a fan of that one. Um, I just listened to an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert and Tim Ferriss and she had talked about that um, no thank you for asking. And if someone follows up with something, but it'd be really good for you, but it would be, but, but, and she said that the next line is, thank you. I realized that you'll be the first person to know if I change my mind. Yeah. Lovely. I'm adoring her right now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I think for us, there is that experience of people want to check like what do you mean you're not well or what do you mean you're fatigued or do you think you'll be better tomorrow when will you be back at the office or there's a lot of investigation questions and I uh, term this under the most unhelpful conversations because that's what they are because what they're trying to do is get to certainty about your illness and really your capacity for them That's what they're trying to get to. Um, 
because you're not playing by the rules of healthy, wealthy, fit, young, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is what is valued in our society or told us that that's what a human being ideal state is and we should all be aiming for, which is complete rubbish. <laughs> um, so when somebody's trying to get that level of certainty with me, um, particularly when I've been so unwell and negotiating at work, there are a couple of things I would say is I don't know when I'll have the capacity. I'm following medical advice. Mm. So that's one thing that's the barrier. It's like it's not me making this decision. I'm following medical advice. How do you handle the people who come in with the um, if you just or have you tried? Yeah, so that really gets my back up um, <laughs> and I get very irritable about that. Uh, so what I say is I've really looked at everything. I've really able to manage this experience for myself and I, again, put that in that most helpful, unhelpful people bag. And it's really about how much energy I want to spend in that. So I remember because I said my I had this liver condition very early in diagnosis, a woman walked up to me, an acquaintance colleague, and said, are you an alcoholic? And I was shocked. I was like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, wow. And that really taught me that other people are trying to fit my illness into their narrative, hmm. what stories make sense for them so that they can work out how to treat me. And that's really what somebody is doing when they're offering you, have you drunk green juice? Have you tried a keto diet? Have you blah, blah, blah? Is they're trying to find a way to make sense of your experience. And one of the things that were both true for me and also in many ways circumvented that conversation was to say this is a very sacred part of my experience. This is a deep journey that I'm on. And for me, I am taking the best medical advice. Um, this is my process basically and I'm in process with this. And let people be confused. Let people have views about, um, you know, what you should do and what you shouldn't do and what treatment you should take and what you shouldn't take. And they can be very strong judgments. And for me, I check back with my sacred no and my sacred yes. Is this a relationship I want to put energy mm -hmm. into? Yes or no? And if it's yes, then look for the opening with that person so we can have an authentic conversation which includes, I know this is really confusing for you. I can assure you I've investigated everything that I can and drinking more green juice just because I have a liver condition, uh, doing a range of things that you think you've read about a healthy liver are not the things that are going to help me with this condition. I have a protein in my blood that is attacking my liver. And that's really how I would do it with somebody I care about so that I'm very direct, it's very clean, uh, and it recognises that they're trying to help. Mm. 
if it's somebody I don't care about, I have a lot of um, thanks, you know, or just ways of disengaging, which sort of internally I go, okay, this is not a person that is safe and trusted to share this information mm-hmm. with. Uh, so when they ask me how I am, it's I'm pretty well or I feel fatigued today. Um, but really be very clean, not just with my words, but actually with my energy in response to them so that my boundary is backed Mm. by my energy and it says I'm actually not open to further conversation. That makes, um, that's a beautiful way of dealing with that. Uh, When you're, when people are dating um, and they're healthy, it's hard to be authentic. It's hard to deal with the energy output. Um, I remember very long ago dating and how exhausted I was emotionally, physically, and just trying to be authentic with a person you're just trying to get to know. How did you do this while you were dealing with all these other things? So I lived alone for 20 years, really, and I worked out the liver condition brought me the gift of not being as independent and solo um, that I was used to in controlling my entire environment and, you know, managing my relationships. I had to learn to ask for help and I had to learn to receive it. And that was quite a significant journey. And what that did was give me the sense that actually it's safe to ask for help from certain people and they want to help and love you and they're invested in your well-being. I really practice my authentic skills through that process. I also am a person who has run my own business while being very unwell and, you know, really put my energy into that. So I'm not unwell all the time. Uh, So between sort of crisis moments of illness or flares, I ran a philosophy business, a philosophy in the pub business. I had a lot of interaction with people. I I need a quick definition of philosophy in the pub business. The pub. So what I did was I have back academic background in philosophy and philosophy in the pub is where uh, a philosopher, a professional philosopher who can actually engage with the public, you can actually deal with adult learners who's not going to pontificate but actually open a genuine discussion of inquiry, comes to a pub and you have a 100 other people in a pub And they give a talk for 45 minutes and then I would facilitate Q&A and we would talk about things like um, robotic care in aged care, like what roles robots would have in aged care or bioethics or sexual uh, integrity and relationships and gender uh, dynamics and philosophy and art and all of those very big, beautiful topics. So that was the business that I ran uh, for 14 years uh, in Melbourne. Wow. I, I just am so sad I did not know that was a job. That sounds like the best job ever. <laughs> it, it was a job I created. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's really one of my geniuses is that I know that to live a life that is filled with joy, I need to be connected to my creative joy. And that looks different on different days. And the philosophy business actually ran while I was in serious treatment and I couldn't go to the events. Um, so facilitators that I had trained went and managed those events. And the most amazing thing about that year is 
with the liver condition when I was completely laid out, I made more money in philosophy events than I had the previous years, even though I was lying down for the whole year, basically. Um, And that was really interesting to have that experience that your life can still bloom even if you're lying in bed. That's, um, that needs to be underlined a few times since we're taught in so much ableism and uh, the scripts that we see in Hollywood, the things that, that are presented to us that the second we're not, um, that we move from being temporarily able to being disabled, that our lives lose meaning, that we stop creating, that it's, um, it's really hard not to internalize that. It seems like the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, I think for me, I'd been running it for a long time by then and I had developed this skill of being very clean in my communication and being quite organised. And so it was a model that I'd, you know, engaged the philosophers, I'd booked them, I had people that I knew could facilitate it. It's, It's sad for me not to go to my own event Um, it's sad for me not to be there and experience the joy and the community engagement and the work that I've created can still go out and be of service and I think it's really important to be connected to your creativity whatever that is it doesn't have to be a business but to know that there is still such beauty in your depth there is such beauty in your compassion that you have learned with yourself and that that is a blessing and a gift for others. You don't do it for others, but you have something that is creatively just magnificent about you. And one of the things that you've created is this um, mythology um, Corresponding to chronic illness, I mean, one of my favorite goddesses. Um, if you could elaborate on that, it's, I'm just fascinated by it. So, what I did when I was very sick with the liver is I thought, okay, well, we don't know if this treatment's going to work. Um, and they were very anxious that they'd let me go too long without treatment. Um, So we didn't know if it was going to be irreversible and heading towards organ failure or whether they would get it literally just in time. So what I did was think, okay, well, I've got all this time. I've got some fatigue. I can't go to the markets and buy my own food, but I also have enough to read or to listen to things. And I read The Great Myths is what I decided to read. And in particular, the first process that I read was actually about Neptune or Poseidon uh, because the experience of Poseidon or Neptune in Greek mythology as the god of the sea is you are out on a boat um, like um, the Odyssey, like Odysseus, and you can't see land and the sea is you know, really rocketing you about and is in control of your experience. And as I was checking in with myself, this experience of being on the sea, not being able to see land, was my internal experience of diagnosis and chronic illness and being in such a significant treatment phase. So I started with the learning of what what is it that I can find that 
talks to me about my experience that produces a map. And as I progressed, I moved on to Persephone. So Persephone's journey is that she is a young maiden. Her mother is Demeter, the goddess of the earth, and she's playing in a field with the other goddesses. She's having a great time just being herself. And then the earth opens up and Hades, the god of the underworld, comes and grabs her and takes her down to the underworld. That to me is the experience of diagnosis and really knowing that your life has changed in an instant in many ways is that you get taken from your normal life, in inverted commas, even if you've been unwell, and you get taken to the underworld. You get stripped down, like you don't have your identity anymore. You don't have... Um, all the things that were stable and you thought were stable for you, your work goes into change, your relationships go into change. The other thing that happens is when she gets taken, we don't know a lot about her journey of being taken to the underworld and anything we do know is written through a patriarchal language. Mm. So what we know about her is she becomes queen of the underworld. So this is somebody or this experience is talking about how that being taken from the overworld gets you enough skills that you can still be sovereign and take up really strong queen space in this underworld journey. While she's having this process, her mother, Demeter of the Earth, is looking for her, desperately searching for her in the overworld, and the Earth goes into winter because the spring is gone, the joy is gone. There's just this grief for her mother. In a long convoluted way, as the Greeks do, there's a negotiation and it's agreed that Persephone will be able to come back up to the overworld for a certain period of time. And that happens through a whole lot of, in many ways, there's some tricks and some trials in that process. What's important for me about this story is that she gets taken from her life, her spring, her experience of vitality, her youth. She goes down to the underworld where time is different. She has different capacities. She learns different skills. She has a conversation with death and she faces that and finds her raw sovereign power through that process. She becomes a queen of the underworld. She knows how to navigate this space. But that is not the end of her story. She then rises to the overworld as a queen and she engages with the overworld from this sovereign place and it is spring when she returns to the overworld. And this for me is the map and narrative of living with chronic illness, that there are skills you build in the underworld of your journey in the grit and the vulnerability, and you can rise and engage with the world, whether that's an hour a day, whether that's a week, a month, however long that is, when you engage with the world, you can engage with it through the power and sovereignty that you have built while you've been in a flare, while you've been managing some extremely difficult experiences. 
what are some of the things you think people can do to build those skills um, when we're in bed, when we're just confronted with a new diagnosis, uncertainty, or even a calendar of how much longer you might have? What are some of the things that you can do as first steps to start to build? So I think the first step is that you have to recognize you're in a different timeline. Time is different here. So there's not day after day, week after week of achievement and you're not in a performance development process with your job. That that timeline is an overworld timeline. The timeline of the underworld is very different. Mm. You can spend weeks in bed thinking that nothing's happening, but actually a whole lot of internal experience becomes available. And usually it's the experience of things that are going to truly piss you off. That's that's what happens in the underworld journey. So some of the things you can do is practice what would it be like if I actually said what I needed or said what I wanted to say in this moment, if I wasn't feeling that I was a burden, if I just worked with the fact for a moment I'm not a burden in this world or to this person, what would I say? And you can start really small. You can ask somebody to uh, come and visit you or I need some help with my groceries. And what I did was I sent an email to five women saying, I need some help with grocery shopping. It's not something I could do. Uh, If you have capacity or there are particular days or weeks, I would like to roster people so that Mm. It isn't on one person to do everything, but they're a select group of women and then people respond to that email chiming in with what they can do. So you're creating a collective around you. And I think just that simplicity of facing the fact that you do need help and finding a small way to ask for it starts to build your skill of being more authentic with what is happening for you. Some people will push back. Some people will be disappointing. That's that's really not a process for you. Your process is to practice asking for what you need. That's your job. I love that you had a specific thing. I think that that's where we get lost a lot of times is that someone will be like, oh, you're sick. How can I help? And then that's a project manager position you're now in where you're having to like think of things that someone can help and you don't even know what their capability is. Like, it's wonderful that you're able to just say, I need this. Let's get a a schedule of who could do this. Like that's so much easier for the person you're asking for help is if you give them a direct thing. And also too, I found offering it to a collective more helpful because when you ask one person to do something, uh, they've, can feel like they're going to be on the hook for this long journey or they think they're the only ones supporting you. And I think getting visibility across a group helps people both chime in but also not have the sense that they are the only one you're relying on. It sounds like a very wise goddess move, like direct, (laughs) ask for what you need and delegate. Like that is... Yeah, I believe Persephone would absolutely be on board with this. Yeah, the other skills that she has is that she's not afraid to have the conversation with death or mortality. Mm. Uh, For me, that is also the death of identity. 
we often think that we're losing parts of ourselves. We're not the way we were. Or as things progress, we lose another capacity. And there's genuine grief in that. And that grief is real and that needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be faced. And we can spend a lot of our time lamenting that or just staying in the territory of the loss. There are things you can do to acknowledge the loss and when you have acknowledged it, you start to free up your energy. There are actually new things that are coming on board and if you stay in the focus of your attention on what's lost, you lose some of the things that are actually opening up for you. That's beautiful. I have a friend who um, recovered from breast cancer and she's not, she's focused on feeling like damaged goods instead of focusing on she's a badass survivor who just, you know, rocks her entire life. And she's afraid of the dating of showing the vulnerability, um, I find the whole thing very fascinating on how we we process ourselves, how we see ourselves versus even how other people see us. I think we're so much harder on ourselves. I think that this is one of the skills that you can learn. Uh, So I have a lot of women clients who have breast cancer and certainly for that journey, a queen of the underworld journey is really powerful because there is a conversation literally with death. There is this uncertainty about whether you'll return to the world or normally. And when you are in that process with yourself, I found it's good to have a map. And that's really what Persephone provides. She provides a narrative. She provides a story, a psychological story about this experience and the stages of this experience, that there is a descent to this conversation but there is this ascent through her power and through her skills to engage with the world. In terms of the vulnerability and dating, there is something beautiful about your own capacity to be with your vulnerability and that is a life skill for everybody. Everybody will meet times where they are wretched and messy and feeling like they don't have control of their life whether it's getting divorced whether it's losing a job there is a death of the old identity and that process can bring you into connection with much deeper parts of yourself when you can be with yourself with your vulnerability what happens is those emotions start to move and they move through your body and they let go. And there are other parts of you that reveal themselves, whether it's your creativity, whether it's, you know, the fact that you can ask for what you want is a skill that you can learn through the experience of chronic illness, which is paradoxical because, you know, you're feeling like you can't do anything for yourself, let alone ask other people. But the life skill of being able to ask for what you want is also a blessing when somebody else asks for what they want. You can honour that request in them. Mm. Whether you step in and do it or not, you are learning to hear and be with the genuine needs of another human being. That is um, 
That's such an incredible point because when you are honest and vulnerable, you're giving the other person that permission to be the same back to you. Yeah. At a different time, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> that's that's very fair. <laughs> that is deeply fair. Um, we're getting close to the end of the hour. Is there something that we have not covered that we should be discussing? Um, you discuss your meditation practice you talked about some incredible shows that you are very into right now if you wanted to go into that direction or books that you're reading uh I think I'd like to touch back just on the dating because we Mm. haven't quite closed that off and dating is tricky uh it's tricky at the best of times (laughs) so what I would like to say about my own experience is that sort of in my 30s and early 40s, I was still trying to work out how to do dating properly. By the time I'd been through both these experiences, I was not remotely concerned about how to do dating properly. What I was interested in is how to have a relationship that was real and was honest and was emotionally connecting. And that is what I went to the dating world with. So I hopped on an app um, while I was still quite unwell with vertigo. I did a quick picture uh, at that time. And one of the key things about that process is that I had stopped dyeing my hair and I had stopped wearing makeup. So I had grey hair because I was mid-40s by this stage. And I knew that I wasn't looking for somebody or a range of people to go on dates with I was interested in a genuine emotional equal partnership that's what I was interested in and that was what I wanted to spend my time communicating so I had a couple of those phone calls where people were excited about me and were really kind of needy in that process and uh, I didn't feel connected it was about their vision or illusion of me But what I did do was meet a man who was very attracted to my wit or um, very intrigued by my intellect, etc. And I met him for a coffee when I could just walk, but I was very clear that I had vertigo. I needed a quiet spot. Um, These were the conditions that I needed and this was my suggestion for the place to meet. And I met him and... He was very engaged with me, quite taken with me. We went and lay apart just across the road from the coffee shop. And I had that experience of true vulnerability of like, oh, actually I like this person and they like me from the beginning. I've shown up authentically. So I'm not going to have to reveal more to them um, about being invisible basically. So I just continued to follow that path in the dating turning up as myself, saying what was important and making agreements from the beginning that it was really important that I was direct and told the truth and was honest and that's the relationship I was looking for. And it turned out that he had been in a couple of relationships and, in fact, that's what he was looking for too. How early did you disclose um, your health status? Uh, Very early. So I exposed it. uh, We had a text for a week and... Um, He said, would you like to meet? I said, yes, I'd like to meet. I need to let you know that I have a vertigo condition, so this is what I um, need in the setup for the date. I was very clean with it on the second and third date that I'd had these experiences of life-threatening. 
and he was up for that. He was so engaged with the authentic truth and he wasn't going to spend eight months and then find out that there was something else. And I was up for somebody who was prepared to be authentic with me about his experiences. And he had some emotional trauma experiences from when he was young. So mm-hmm. we opened the space and it's not for me to take care of him and in processing him stuff and it's not for him to take care of me in my processing of stuff, but it is to be honest. And then we just help each other. Uh, he, you know, I had a very bad flare with vertigo, couldn't get out of bed. He did all the cooking. He brought food to me. It was a deeply um, distressing experience again for me as any flare is. And I had to trust that this person was present. And then I also worked out what do I need to be safe even if this person can't do everything I need them to do? And what does that safety look like for me? And I need some more money in the bank. And I then just asked other people to also help so that it wasn't all on him. That's um, something that I, I get a lot of questions about is how quickly or early would you disclose that? And it's when it's such a huge part of our lives, I mean, there's, there's very few ways to disassociate that, you know, when we're this sick, that this is, you know, a huge part of our days and our existence. And while we don't want to not be seen as humans, it is an important part of, of that discussion. I think there's something about that I knew that I developed extraordinary skill and power through the experience. So I didn't turn up to the date apologising for being unwell. Ooh, I was just yeah. very direct. Um, I have a vertigo condition and I, you know, have a, an autoimmune condition as well which I sort of might have disclosed the second or third date, but it was very early because we were committed to honesty and truth. That, those experiences are part of my power. There is this grit, this determination, this tenacity, this capacity to be with vulnerability, which means I could be with his vulnerability. All of those are actually these beautiful human compassionate powers they're just it's ironic but the messiness of us is where the beauty of our power is that's a stunning reframing from the feeling of being damaged to as we're so conditioned to see like the strength being physical and that these are our superpowers that's a beautiful way to reframe this yeah you can bring anything to me like you can bring if you feel really messy about something, if you're triggered about something, I've sat and had a conversation with death. You, know, you can bring anything to me. This is, I'm not, you're not going to be too messy for me, which doesn't mean I'm not going to have boundaries if I feel like you're overwhelmed or I'm overwhelmed from your emotional experience. I'm still going to have a boundary with people, but I'm not going to say, Uh, let's just talk about the superficial things because uh, I don't want to get too involved in the truth of your real experience. So if you could just hold off for about eight months before you tell me or show up as who you really are, that's just not the game I'm in. Oh my goodness, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate this conversation and 
If you'd like to know more about Michelle, please go to our website, invisiblenotbroken.com. Right at the very top, there'll be a button to hit so that you can go to Michelle's website and learn more about the Goddess of the Underworld training and thought process. Um, We are now a network, so please take a listen to some of our other podcasts. I'm Monica Michelle with Explicitly Sick. We have Ava with Human Care. We have Jason with Discomfort Zone, and we do have Dr. Phillips joining us. Um, Actually, by the time this will be released, he will be up and running with his chronic illness, disability, and sex um, podcast. So we have all been very, very excited to, to tune into that. Um, it's kind of an unprecedented world. So being kind um, is is so desperately important and uh, being gentle in what way that looks like to you and being a badass, it's never been more important. And however you are capable of doing that, um, please, please do that. If you could head over to Patreon, if that's something that you can and are willing to do, we really would like to get better transcription services. We are aware that's a huge issue. Um, we just would like to afford it. Um, if you can't and you find value in this, please share these episodes. Um, we are non-advertising, so all of our growth is thanks to you guys. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Um...